Amen. What a beautiful name it is. <laughs> the name of Jesus. Oh, praise the Lord. We are really grateful again to be with you. I um, early conversations with Emily and talked about, you know, maybe a month series. So I got a month with five Sundays. And then, uh, <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, no, that's good. And then another Sunday, I'm like, wow, six weeks has gone by actually pretty quickly. So thank you. Um, I could probably spend almost all my time up here. Um, just, <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, um, I could spend almost all the time up here just um, wanting to encourage you in your journey. Thank you for the warmth of hospitality, um, the kind words you've offered to Susan and me. Um, I'll, I'll be as frank as I can because that's actually the only way I know how to be. <laughs> and sometimes that has gotten me into trouble. But, but um, you know, I, transitions can be difficult and there's grief associated with them. But you know, the spirit of the Lord is here. Love is here. There's a lot of hope here. So I'm deeply encouraged. And we will continue to be as supportive as we can. Um, your church has a strong reputation. And I'm glad to have shared time with you all. You know, as Brother Tim was getting prayed for here, or, get, or his position being announced, someone, you know, shouted out, thank you, Tim. And I, and I wanted to cry. I just thought, you know, I've, I've been in places where someone is presented to the congregation who really just wants to serve. And for some strange reason, there are envious people, suspicious people. Like, how did they get that job? Why did, you know, and to hear someone spontaneously say, thank you, Tim, I'm like, oh, Lord. How wonderful. Somebody using their gifts and it's affirmed by the congregation. I mean, that's, that's Acts chapter 13. That's, that's, that's separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I've called them as we're sitting around praying and, and the Spirit just comes and says, I, I need these two right now. That's a wonderful thing. It's delightful. I didn't plan on saying any of that, but this is, this is great. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes it feels like there are tensions in the U.S. over race that, that seemed worse than they were when I was younger even. And I'm going to talk to you today about racial reconciliation as you start this journey together, or sorry, continue the journey together, but start a new uh, season in that journey. Let me take another moment to pray. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. Lord, I am grateful, as I've said many times, and I don't know maybe a different word to use, but, but my heart is filled and, um, and warmed over the love that's here, but, but more so to think about the love you have for us. Nothing can separate us from that love, and we've been singing about that and celebrating that reality. So I pray, Lord, right now that you would visit us by the power of your Spirit. You would continue to show that you are present here in how we feel, what we see, what we do, how we experience uh, these moments together. And I pray you would help me to communicate the truth of your Word in a way that is helpful. Lord, I, I'm, with all my idiosyncrasies, what makes Dennis, Dennis, Lord, I pray that uh, in spite of that, and through that, you could help me to be what is needed at this moment. So, Lord, let your will be done. I pray by the authority of our Lord Jesus in that beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
you know, there was a time when I felt we were making progress when it came to race and stuff. I mean, I, I grew up in the 60s and into the 70s. I mean, I was a little kid in the 60s, but in the 70s is more I was aware of things. And uh, so, so there's a sense where you think progress is being made. You start to hear about things, um, maybe learning about things in school. But now I'm at a, we're at a point where those who try to point out and discuss, you know, the legacy of racism in our country are accused of being the racist. And, and whiteness, this power in our society, it's, it's not as much about skin color as it is about maintaining power and privilege. So in bygone years, religion, politics, and even science conspired to support the myth of white supremacy. And it wasn't that long ago. I mean, we had the, the so-called curse of, of Ham that was the most prominent way to defend slavery and justify slavery in the 19th century. You started to have uh, politics certainly conspire to, to separate people and to uh, enforce racism. I mean, just think about even Jim Crow laws. And even science, this pseudoscience, this, this sense that uh, some people were created inferior to other people. I mean, these were all conspiring to support the myth of white supremacy. And so rather than learning about that in school, we're now saying, shh, don't teach the children that. I thought our society was increasingly more willing to reckon with that reality, but we have regressed. The empire has been striking back by claiming anti-racists are trying to make white people feel guilty. We certainly can't have that. We have Christians who can read and preach that truth makes us free, but don't want the truth said out loud and not taught in school. Now, Christians, we still have a bit of work to do when it comes to racial reconciliation. So early in my Christian journey, I felt that God wanted me to be part of some kind of reconciling work, bringing people of different backgrounds together. And when Susan and I met at Cornell, it was clear that she was already leaning in that direction. And we made purposeful efforts to be involved in multi-ethnic ministry, build relationships across societal barriers. And I'll admit, however, that my idealism got tempered by doses of reality. People used to call Susan and me Bridges, you know, meaning we help to connect people across cross-culturally. And then I find out that Bridges get trampled on. <laughs> bridges get beat down. And because we don't always pay attention to infrastructure, those buildings fall, those bridges fall apart, and then we have to build them all over again. In case you're not following my metaphor, I'm seeing right now, more than 30 years after I started in ministry, that Christians are still trying to explain and practice multi-ethnic ministry and racial justice. And some Christians are looking for new strategies because apparently the millions of books, the sold-out conferences, the thousands of hours of workshops have not managed to break racism stronghold. And other people are looking now for loopholes, hoping to get out of these discussions of racism. These people are so fragile, they'd rather let justice con injustice continue than have the truth come out. So here we are, after about 2,000 years or so of Christianity, trying to figure out how to practice racial justice, or as some would say racial reconciliation, in a nation that claims to stand for life and liberty with a majority of people claiming to believe in God. This is ironic indeed. Ironic indeed. So I'm here to encourage you all, as I said already, in your journey of pursuing racial reconciliation. And I confess that I tend to use uh, personally the term racial justice. I explained it in my book, Might from the Margins, and that was a shameless plug for my book. And it's funny because I didn't think about that till just this minute. I said, you don't have to buy the book, although, you know, Papa need a new pair of shoes. Just kidding. <laughs> but I, I really, <laughs> I got grandkids, y'all. But I, um, <laughs> 
in all seriousness, I realize evangelicals are used to the term racial reconciliation, and this is the term you all are using here, and it's still um, uh, present in our um, discussions. So, and that's the term I'm using today in my um, uh, uh, sermon here. And as I go through, I want to try to attempt to, uh, to answer briefly a few journalistic style questions when it comes to racial reconciliation. It's the why, the what, and the how of racial reconciliation. And so to, the, to do that, that's not all the questions, but those are the three I can handle for the moment. Um, we're gonna look at Colossians 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 5 to 17. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your heart. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> so why? Why do we practice racial reconciliation? The reality is that there is a dominant cultural perspective that sets the tone for everything else. So this is the way societies work. And in my biblical and theological world, uh, white theology and biblical interpretation doesn't call itself white. <laughs> it doesn't need an adjective, apparently, because it set the standard. It's the default. So we have Asian-American theology, African-American, Latino-Latina theology, post-colonial theology, feminist interpretation, womenist hermeneutics, but you won't typically see white European male theology listed as a course because that would be the foundation. That's the backdrop we're working with. So it's no surprise then that racial reconciliation is viewed as an elective. It's not the main thing. It's not something, it's something you might take up or get interested in if you have time or you need a few extra credits. This is perhaps one reason why we have been crawling along as Christians when it comes to race and ethnicity. But the New Testament treats unity across societal division as something that is inherent to the gospel. I mean, notice how Paul slides right into verse 11 here. He, he talks about these moral and ethical categories. These things are fundamental to Christian conversion. 
putting off the old self, taking on a new self. That's what the gospel is about. He says it straight out. The gospel involves repentance, turning away, embracing anew. He puts it in the metaphor of, of getting dressed, take this off and put this on. Not just new ideas or thoughts, a new way of being. Paul moves into verse 11 by saying, in this renewal, the renewal that's about your conversion, in this renewal, he doesn't say, oh, you know, by the way, if you're so led, or you might want, you might want to try to break down some barriers that society erected, or if God puts it on your heart, you might want to challenge society's segregation. There is no take it or leave it perspective here. Paul says, abandon the vices, fornication, impurity, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language, all these things, and recognize in that renewal that there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. Christ is all and in all. So the Jew-Gentile contrast, we know this is well documented in the Bible. I'm not going to break it down in detail, but Jewish people considered everyone else pagan, dirty, and wicked. The Greeks here, representing all Gentiles, they took Jews to be weird, so many rituals, only worshiping one God, when the rest of the world worshiped many gods. Jews and Gentiles coexisted, certainly not in solidarity. How could they? They had no meaningful relationship with each other and certainly did not have love for each other. And Paul says, in Christ, those distinctions are no longer barriers. The differences exist, clearly, but they are no longer markers of status or value. Relationships in Christ transcend society's divisions, at least they ought to. He then uses the term barbarians. You know, this is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan, barbarian. Well, actually, he didn't say very much in that movie, I think, but, um, but there's been, I think, a remake of Conan the Barbarian. I don't know how we created this mythology about the barbarians. But Greek speakers consider everybody else pretty much barbarian because they view non-Greek speakers as unsophisticated. So they accuse them of making unintelligible sounds, bar, bar, bar. That's actually the word we get barbarian from. It's automatopoeia, the Greeks' way of mocking non-Greeks. They just bar, bar, bar. It's the way some Americans mock those who speak English as a second language. Instead of celebrating the fact that someone can speak more than one language, xenophobic Americans, many of whom speak English inconsistently, breaking its own grammar rules, have the audacity to mock people who can speak more than one language. I mean, talk about arrogant. The Greeks did this, and people are still doing it, and it's a way of devaluating that culture. Scythians whose origins around the Black Sea, north of the Lycus Valley, close to not far from where Colossae is or was, they were mocked as savages in the Greco-Roman world. It's reminiscent of how people in our country stereotype native people. Paul says in this renewal, in this way of Christ, we do not divide ourselves the way the rest of the world does. These words are different but similar to what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, words that may be familiar to church-going folks and, and may be comforting for some. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. To the Galatians, 
Paul mentions the slave-free distinction, just like here in Colossians, and also includes the male-female contrast. And in both of these passages, Galatians 3.28 and here in Colossians 3.11, Paul does not deny identity or deny reality. A Jew is still a Jew. For example, what he does is declare the breakdown of these categories as markers of status and power. Status and power. Dismantling the hierarchical system is, a part, is part and parcel of what it means to be in Christ. Breaking down the power behind these distinctions is not some sort of extra that you add on if you've got time or energy. This is why racial reconciliation matters. Now, I know for some people it's eschatological. That's the fancy word for saying it's off in the future in some glory place. So they appeal to Revelation 7-9, and I get that. In fact, that's a powerful verse in 7-9. I'll go ahead and read that too. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. It's a beautiful image. And some people say, hey, hey, that's the way it's going to be in heaven, so that's the way it ought to be now. And that's actually an okay way to think. But that picture in heaven really is meant to uh, celebrate the universal nature of the gospel. It's, it's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all kinds of people, and here they are, disciples of all kinds of people, baptized, singing around the throne. But that passage doesn't say a whole lot about the local assembly. It's a description, not a prescription. But back here in Colossians 3 and Galatians 3, These are prescriptions. We pursue racial reconciliation because the unity of all peoples is fundamental to what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now, I could spend an hour just on that why, and we could have some conversation about it, which I think is always great. Um, I think if I were ever to do church again and plan a church again, well... I'm doing one of those things I said I wasn't going to do, which is tell you every thought that pops into my head, so I'm not going to do that. But we would have more time to discuss these things, which is why you have these wonderful small groups. So I hope that in your small groups you will take some time to talk about these things because that's where, you know, the magic happens, right? So Dennis can say all kinds of stuff, and you can say, oh, he's gone after, you know, however many times. But you guys can talk this out and say, what? Wait, wait, wait a second. The why, why is this really part of the gospel? I thought it was just something you could do if you got interested in it and you happened to take a you know, mission trip, you went to another country, you came back and said, oh my goodness, I need to do something different. I mean, I'm glad the way the light bulb comes on, but this is the way the gospel has always been preached. There is neither, there is no longer. Anyway, I want to take a few minutes to get into the what as well. For Paul, unity marks the genuine people of God. That's especially poignant in a competitive world that places people within their caste system with a powerful minority of people set up as the powerful ones through violence and coercion. And make no mistake about it, patriarchy and white supremacy are sustained by violence and coercion, including what books are allowed and which are forbidden. Paul, however, puts forward a different way. Let me ask you, by the way, what's, what's Paul's favorite way? If you're Bible readers or been in church for a while, it's not meant to embarrass anybody who's not familiar with the Bible. But if you are, do you know what's like his favorite way of addressing the people he writes to? What does he call them? 
Now you all are free to talk back if you want. Do you remember what he calls them? Actually, rarely saints. He's very conversational way he does it. We almost take it for granted. Brothers and sisters. Beloved is uh, occasional. Actually, John uses that much more. But, but frequently, Paul says, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. What is he doing? He's telling you there's a whole new family here. And for Paul, who's been ministering to these Gentiles, brother and sister, that's powerful language right there. And we are prone to miss it. There's a whole new family. The gospel for Paul doesn't make, you know, friendly acquaintances that we sip coffee and eat snacks with in a fellowship hall. For Paul, for Peter, for John, for James, all the New Testament writers, Jesus creates a brand new family. And for some of us, we need a new family. And this is what racial reconciliation signifies, that we have a common identity as children of God. Now, we, of course, all human beings, all worthy of dignity and respect because we're all made in God's image. And we could spend an hour just talking about that being made in the image of God. But right now, I'm focusing on Christian community and pointing out that when we, when we confess to follow Jesus, got baptized, or maybe we were baptized first and then learned how to, to uh, be part of this new, com- this new community, we grew in our commitment to Jesus. Either way, baptized as a baby, baptized later— We were baptized into a family, sometimes described as a body, a functional unit composed of different parts. And both images, family and body, describe connections, relational, intimate, mutually beneficial connections. The thing about families, the thing about bodies is that they require mutuality in order to function in a healthy way. Not every family member or body part does the same job, but all are necessary. So I just submitted a manuscript for a book discussing biblical humility and how it functions in Christian community. And in the manuscript, I I mentioned briefly contrasting experiences I had with a couple of wealthy men in different uh, congregations, and each with way more money that I could actually, like, grasp my head around. I I had a chapter. It's in a chapter I call the humility and stewardship (laughs) Now, the first man made such money that he, like, wanted everybody to know he was wealthy. And he influenced policy and practice at the church, even without having a, a voted-on position. He, I was there, would stand up in congregational meetings when we are presenting the budget and would shake his head to items, send the deacons back to the drawing board. And there were sycophants who enabled his arrogance because they either wanted a job in his company, and some really did, or they just wanted to keep his money in the church. Or maybe they had some agenda I don't know and didn't recognize. But his status influenced how the church operated. He invited us to his home for lunch shortly after I was called to be the associate pastor at the church. I had no clue how wealthy he was, really. But he made it clear. And he said to Susan me at one point, if you, I'm not kidding you. I really wish I could have recorded this conversation, but it's like seared in my memory. He said, if you expect our church to be racially diverse, we have to create a two-tiered Sunday school system. He said, because my kids are too smart to be in the same class with city kids. I kid you not. Susan, my witness. God is my witness. He said that. So, you know, in my young 
naivete. I'm trying to be all kind and courteous. I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm holding on to myself. But at the same time, I'm thinking, how, how, do, you, how do you get to be who you are? And then I realized that's how you get to be who you are. And so, so I talked to the leadership about this. This is my mistake. How naive I was. The leadership depends on this family for their money. Money speaks louder than Bible verses. You can tweet that. <laughs> Money speaks louder than Bible verses, even in the church people. Now, I'm not totally cynical here because the Lord used this second wealthy man to, to encourage my faith and hope. It was a different church. And Susan and I were similarly invited to lunch at this man's house, and it was then that we realized that he was super wealthy. But the energy was so different. He never talked about his money. In fact, I found out only in roundabout ways that he was mentoring young leaders. He was holding Bible studies for young men. He was supporting all manner of ministries and projects. He never tooted his horn about this. And he made, never made people feel as if they needed to genuflect when he was in the room. This man, along with his wife, demonstrated, and they still do, that Christian faith means family. Family is meant to transcend society's way of marking status. The first man made me realize how true it is when Jesus says it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. But the second man showed me the rest of what Jesus said. With God, all things are possible. <laughs> so, so why? Why do we pursue racial reconciliation? Because it's inherent to the gospel which advances radical unity that Jesus Christ expects of his followers. And what is it? It's living into that radical unity by acknowledging our common identity in Christ so our friend, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, she has a definition of racial reconciliation that you all are coming across in uh, Pastor Rich Riotis' book. She says, reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. That's a powerful definition, and I would encourage you to spend some time ruminating on it. So we've talked about why. Racial reconciliation. Now, now I, I, I will say this. If I had more time, I would try to make a case because I understand race is a social construct that's, that's really just meant to justify white supremacy in our, in our world. Um, so reading race back into the scripture is anachronistic. I get that. So when, when we're talking Jew, Gentile, and barbarian, and Scythian, we're not talking racial categories per se, but we are still talking about a, a, a hierarchy, a sort of a caste system. So for that reason, I can make the analogy. So I, I, I'm careful about, what I, about the terms, but I didn't want to just get, you know, somebody tweeting me later or saying, Dr. was talking about race, race not in the Bible. So I tell you, I'm on record. I'm, I'm just letting you know. But I do want to talk about, so I said, so I want to get to the how. Cause, cause I, but I only think we can talk about how if we're convinced of the why and the what. See, I've been to a lot of conferences and workshops. I mean, I talked about them earlier, but I've been to a lot of them in 30-some years or so, even, even younger than that, when I wasn't even in ministry, but I was in college. And you go to these things, and it's been a long time. And, they, and the focus is on how we, we get people together, you know, whether we're singing songs or holding hands or doing pulpit exchanges or having potlucks at each other's churches. There was a lot of how conversations. I think I told you we were always singing that Rust Half song, you're my brother, you're my sister. So take me by the hand, together we will work till he comes. There's no foe that can defeat us when we're walking side by side. As long as there is love, 
we will stand. It's beautiful. But it ain't enough. <laughs> it ain't enough. I mean, we can sing all the songs we want. We can cook potlucks. You can try collard greens. But this is not the point. We can have the pumpkin pie, sweet potato pie debate all we want, or how to do macaroni and cheese. All of that's fun, and all that's cool, and all that's actually, you know, at some point helpful, even though it's funny. But we can't get to the how unless we're convinced of the why and the what. Too many folks treated racial reconciliation as this optional sociological issue and not something inherent to the gospel. So, in fact, racial reconciliation demands a a, a relational maturity that requires time and energy that some Christians just don't want to give. So they'll give money, usually, but not time and energy. Now, back in the 80s and 90s, yeah, way back, church growth was about numbers. And you would hear church growth, growth language a lot. I was in seminary during that time well, in the late 80s, and we were taught the homogeneous unit principle. I don't know if you've heard of that, but we were taught that straight out in our mission classes. It's the idea that churches grow best when they consist of people who are alike because homogeneity fosters growth. So during my seminary years, Willow Creek was taken off, and so was Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. In fact, Saddleback is a good example of how the homogeneous unit principle works because they describe their target, Saddleback Sam. And you'll see a picture, I think, of Saddleback Sam. So now, yes, it's dated, but the point is they were serious. Now, I can't read all those things from a distance because I'm old. And uh, actually, I don't think anybody's going to read those. But if y'all, if y'all be eating a lot of carrots or something, if you could see that. But <laughs> well, I don't, oh, I mean, you can, okay. <laughs> I'm scared of you. That was good. Um, I won't read all of that, but clearly they had a picture of what the kind of person they wanted in church. Willow Creek used to talk about inviting the people you'd like to go on vacation with, pretty much ensuring the homogeneity of the, of the suburbs. And I will be the first to admit that the homogeneous principle certainly works if your goal is big attendance. And my seminary classmates were practically drooling over the megachurch model of getting thousands of people into a cathedral to hang on their every word and celebrate their ingenious leadership style. And people like me were viewed as weak and unimaginative because we wanted to see people's lives change, neighborhoods transformed, and how people could deal with life in the midst of nonsense. But they looked at me, I'm serious. I have friends who said, Dennis will never be a church planter because I wasn't thinking like these guys. I tell you I'm old, so I got a lot of stories, but, 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 but let me just go on. We were trying to measure success in terms of these transformed lives. And these mega churches were modeling success mostly in terms of numbers, how many bodies they can get in the building, how many bucks. You heard about that trinity of church growth, buildings, bucks, and bodies. And even if the neighbors complained about their existence, about the change in traffic patterns, about all manner of other things. It didn't matter to those churches because thousands of people were coming to get the weekend's entertainment. I know I sound cynical because I have to check myself because I've been accused of being jealous of megachurch pastors. I'm not jealous. I'm concerned. Back in 2017, when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, 
our youngest and her husband were living in Houston. And some people got upset that Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church didn't immediately open its doors as a shelter for people. The church actually did have to do some damage control on that one. And I noticed that many of the people who got upset tended to think of church as part of a neighborhood, which I confess is the way I think. After all, that's one reason why churches enjoy certain tax exemptions, because it was assumed that there would be assets to their neighborhood. But megachurches don't always view themselves that way. They are campuses where people come, you know, they're shopping malls where people come to get the product and go home. Why would you expect them to open their doors when they don't have neighbors, they have customers? Now to be fair, Lakewood did open their doors. We wonder why they weren't the first to do it. But honestly, I have seen how so-called outreach or community ministry is an afterthought in megachurches. They create the DNA, they get really big, and when it's set, somebody says to them, you need to do some outreach. So they set up another thing, they create the nonprofit, they get somebody, maybe African-American to lead it, and they do this, and if they're not careful, it becomes colonial, it becomes patronizing, and it's merely a charitable institution to maintain the status quo rather than challenge it. And I'm telling you this because I've seen it in 30 years. Now, I can say a lot more about multi-ethnic ministry, but I'm focusing on racial reconciliation. So how do we practice it? How do we get there? I'm not going to give you the seven steps in the formulas because you got some in Pastor Rich Riotis' book. He's got some steps that you can actually follow that are spiritual and not just, you know, run out there and put a project together. But I do want to focus on the virtues that are mentioned in this Colossians passage. I mean, just think about it. These, these hierarchies are embedded in their society. This is the way the society functions, just like us. So we can only imagine when somebody's reading this letter to the Christians in Colossae and they get to verse 11, you can imagine those folks who were pretty much okay with the way the status quo was working would find it pretty uncomfortable to hear there's no, neither slave or free. What, wait, wait. There's neither Jew or Greek. There's, no, there's barbarians. I'm not, I, I can't use those categories. And then the folks who are in those categories are saying, whoa, so this Jesus thing is so different from the rest of the world. The ideals of Colossians 3.11 contradict the Roman competition and hierarchy and it imagines an egalitarian community. And so it makes perfect sense that to get that egalitarian community, Paul goes right away to verse 12. Oh, so as holy chosen ones, beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You will need these things if you practice that 3.11 egalitarian relationship. You had better be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Our location in Christ means love, not social status governs our relationship. So racial reconciliation denounces status seeking. It makes love the primary issue. And humility means that racial reconciliation is not about quotas, it's about peacemaking. And peacemaking requires more than getting different people in proximity to each other, even though that's a start. Because I hasten to point out that while proximity is a normal goal, though, the real issue is power. A truly peacemaking community of believers recognizes God-given human equality, requires those in the more powerful or higher societal position to learn from and even defer to those of lower status. We could keep on going even to the household codes, but uh, so-called uh, slaves, uh, masters, wives, husbands, children, parents, because to tell the paterfamilias anything, the head of the household to tell them anything, was not the Greco-Roman way. 
But to tell them to practice love, that tempers an awful lot of things. It's rare to find white Christians who will follow leaders who are black, indigenous, or other people of color. So my dear friend and sister in the Lord, uh, former colleague at the Sanctuary Covenant Church, Reverend Dr. Rosalie Norman, she did her doctor of ministry work, her thesis on white followership. <laughs> and she rightly recognizes that many white people, even uh, maybe especially Christians, have a difficult time following non-white people. So I've witnessed this difficulty, and it seems that people of color might get opportunities to lead white people if, and I'm, I'm emphasizing the if, they can somehow demonstrate their allegiance to whiteness or show that they have been assimilated well enough into whiteness and they're not too angry about racism and they can somehow, you know, uh, pass a bunch of other unnamed tests to the satisfaction of powerful white people. And even then, those white people might not follow. And if they do, they do it reluctantly and they're prepared to run at the first sign of difficulty. Sociologist Corey Edwards, she's mapped this out. I've mentioned her before. She writes about how churches are multi-ethnic only to the extent that white people can accept it even when the leadership is not white. In other words, they still have the power to walk and blow up the whole experiment. As soon as the multicultural heat gets turned up, it's most likely the white folks who leave the kitchen. This is a hard word, but it's one I think you want to wrestle with. But I said my goal today was to encourage you so I'm not going to give you too many stories about racial reconciliation gone wrong. <laughs> Let me end by saying there's a powerful payoff to pursuing racial reconciliation. And I don't mean to sell it to you as if I'm offering a bribe or something, but I want to say that when we pursue racial reconciliation, we are forced to trust God more than human ingenuity. We find ourselves increasingly devoted to prayer. We find ourselves becoming better listeners. We find ourselves becoming increasingly generous with our time and energy. Yes, building solidarity takes energy. There will be some blood, sweat, and tears, but our efforts bring glory to God. Next weekend, Susan and I will have to miss the uh, worship gathering with, with Bronzeville because we'll be flying back from our time in D.C. See, we're going back to be part of the 20th anniversary of the church that we started in our, our little house in uh, Southeast D.C., Peace Fellowship Church. So years ago, at one point, when we were trying to find a place to worship, we rented a closed-down funeral home. Long story, I won't share it, but a funeral home. And uh, so we did have a lot of, you know, death-to-life kind of conversations and things. And, and it worked for a while. We were in that place for several years. At the dedication service, a wise older woman who had been doing ministry in D.C. for a lot of years, grew up in D.C., she was at the March on Washington as a kid. She walked all the way to the National Mall herself, and she reflects on that March on Washington. Well, she said to me, she just pulled me aside, she goes, Dennis, this is the most diverse group of Christians I've ever been part of. I smiled, not knowing what to say, and she said, well, it's because of you. And she was commending me for being that bridge that I had gotten hurt trying to be. There were families in Peace Fellowship Church from very different worlds. And I'm not going to shout them out because this is getting recorded and I'm not trying to embarrass anybody or shame anybody. But let's just say they were from very different worlds. And I found out just randomly, just through random conversation, the African-American dad, he said to me, Dennis, you know, I've never been to a white person's house before. And he was explaining to me how they had gotten together for meals. And I'm, I'm like, I had no idea. It was not something we orchestrated as a church. It wasn't go to that other person's house for dinner night. It wasn't that kind of thing. It just happened. And I thought, where else would this happen? 
Not in most neighborhoods because neighborhoods are functionally segregated. Not in most churches because they track with those neighborhoods often. Not in most schools because they also track with the neighborhood. Where would these people come together? Where would they have any reason to have a meal together? It's because Peace Fellowship Church existed. People in powerful positions barely see the people who do the service work at their jobs. These people would never have had any reason to connect. So I tell you, one of the rewards of racial reconciliation is that you become living witnesses of what only the Spirit of God can do. We can legislate integration, but you can't legislate love. And when we are humble enough to practice the peacemaking of racial reconciliation, God is honored. God will reward you. And in ways that will be meaningful for you. I tell people all ministry is local. They say all politics is local. All ministry is local. So you don't need to compare yourself to what any other church is doing. Watch the way the Spirit of God shows up among you all. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves for the work of reconciliation. Keep in mind that God will empower you even when you make mistakes and fall short. And God will not only empower you, he will reward you. And the glory of racial reconciliation belongs to God. And as Paul says at the very end, whatever you do in word or, do, do, word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord God, we give you thanks for the time that we have had together. Lord, there are some hard things because our society has made them really hard. But we are praying by the power of your spirit that we would um, lean into these hard things and we would trust you in ways we perhaps haven't done before, maybe have and, and got hurt, but we're coming back. We're coming back stronger with knowledge, with wisdom, with that, that only comes from experience. And we are leaning in even heavier. And I'm praying, Lord God, that you would strengthen Newcom to be, to be a people, sister, brother, welcoming people who understand that we are tackling this thing. Oh, it's going to take forever. But we're getting better and better. And we're trusting your spirit in the process. So we give you thanks and we give you the glory. Amen and amen. Thank you.